Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. So we've been in the book of Colossians together, and we're going to turn there in just a second, Colossians chapter 3. While you're turning there, um, I need you to put a date in your calendar. That is May 2nd, Sunday, May 2nd. It's, going, it's coming up in a few weeks. That is going to be a big day for us. That's going to be our five-year anniversary of starting the Hill City Church, and it's also going to be a day where we look to the future. So if you are new to us, you may not know this, we've been on a multi-year journey to have a home for ourselves, the Hill City Church. Uh, we have a property that we have been working on for a p- couple of years. We've cleared the land. It's ready to build. Here's our plan. If everything works like it's supposed to, which we've learned in 2020, it always does not. But if it works like it's supposed to, we will be building this fall towards our new home. Okay? This is where you come in. Sunday, May 2nd is our celebration Sunday, and it's our commitment Sunday. In order for us to build this new church, We've been working on raising funds and doing a lot of things for a couple of years, and now this is the last step, that we come to the people of Hill City Church, covenant members, regular attenders, if this is your church, that we come and we all together sacrifice, we're going to make two-year commitments to give above and beyond to get us in this church, into our new facility. We'll make those commitments, we'll all be giving over the next two years, and together we can take that next step. We'll tell you more information. We have a website that we're going to put out that's coming with a lot of questions and answers on it. We'll talk more about that right now. You need to know, Sunday, May 2nd, is when that will happen, and we'll give you more information over the next few weeks. We good? Let's jump in. Sonny, read our passage for us today, would you please? Yes. Colossians chapter 3, 18 through 4, 1. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey to your parents in everything, and for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as by people pleasures but with the sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoers will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and this is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So this is why we, put, we preach through books of the Bible. No preacher says, what am I going to preach this Sunday? I know a pastor that talks about slaves and masters and tells women to submit. That's what I want to preach on. But, but we do. And, and we walk through. We've been walking through the book of Colossians together as a church. And, and if you're, you're catching up with us, Colossians is all about the new humanity. That, that Jesus has created. By Jesus' uh, life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, he's, he's created this new humanity made up of multiple nations, multiple ethnicities, people from all backgrounds, and he's brought them together in this organization, this thing called the church. And this church is a picture of the new humanity. And so Colossians, especially chapter 3, has been this section where we're invited to view ourselves in the new humanity as opposed to the old humanity, and contrasting the two. See, in the old humanity, uh, 
injustice reigns, and the new humanity were to long for justice. In the old humanity, there are dividing lines everywhere, and the new humanity were brought together in unity. In the old humanity, there's suspicion for one another. In the new humanity, there is love for one another and, and thinking well of one another. In, in the new humanity, it's all about power over. In the new humanity, it's all about sacrificial service. It's a contrasting of the new humanity and the old. And, and he's going to take this now, Paul, into every relationship that we have in our lives. And here's the reality, that this new humanity creates a new identity in us. And that new identity creates new relationships. Let me say that again. The new humanity, that we are image bearers of God brought together under Christ, that new humanity creates a new identity. And that new identity leads to new relationships. And this picture of this new humanity is what made the, the, the church of the first century so countercultural. That when the church gathered on Sunday, the, the first century church, it was all about a meal. That's what they did. They gathered together to have a meal to celebrate. And a table says so much about who we value. Who sits around your table shows who you value. And in this new humanity, this church, they centered around a table. And as you're going to learn as we go through this, this table was a countercultural statement. Let's, let's jump into this understanding. So in the first century world, here is the, here is the world that Paul is writing to. Okay? They're in Colossae, which is a, a, a town that's under the rule and reign of Rome. In, Roman, in the Roman world, it was all about power, and the power was at the top. In, in our culture, we have a huge middle class. Most of you would be considered middle class in, in America. Meaning, yeah, you have money, you can eat, you can go on vacation, you're pretty comfortable. In their day, first century world, there was not a big middle class. Power was at the top. At the very top, you had the emperor, he was God. Whatever he said went. Underneath him, you had the governing class, senators, governors. They were, they were in charge. That was where all the power was. Underneath them, you would have some wealthy people. Some of those were priests at some of the temples. And then underneath that, you have the rest of the people. 85% of people in first century Roman world were called the poor working class, meaning you were one bad day away from losing everything. You were one bad crop away from losing everything you had and being now a slave or a servant to someone. 85% of the people were working poor. They struggled to survive. They're merchants, they're artisans, they're day laborers, they're slaves. And then below them, were what were called the expendables. They had no value. Widows, orphans, sick, and disabled. They were expendables. And as a whole, no one cared about them. And the Roman world, every city was a mix of conquered nations. See, here's what Rome believed. They, were, they believed in peace through war. Meaning, the way for peace on the earth was for Rome to rule the whole earth. And so what they did, they would go into these different nations, and they would conquer that nation. They would take those people, and they would disperse them all over the Roman Empire. That way you don't have one group of people that could band back together 
and, and take over Rome, they would disperse them. And so every Roman city was this collection of people from all different backgrounds and all different nations and all different ethnicity. And their society was completely divided around these classifications of people, around what ethnicity you were from, about how much money you had, about how much power you had. And the rules of Roman society is you do not associate with anyone who is not in your class, who's not in your little group. And so it was unheard of for a day laborer to sit across from a wealthy business owner or a wealthy uh, governor and share a meal together. It did not happen. Society was divided. And so this thing pops up called the church. And the first century church were, were, were these little groups of people, these believers that would gather in homes, and they're a collection of all these different demographics of people. In these churches, you have servants and slaves and widows and orphans and people with money and Jews and Gentiles from, every, from, from all over the world. And Christianity was what Jesus called a city on a hill. Like the table in the first century church for a group of believers to gather together on Sunday in the first century and for at a table there to be a rich person next to a servant with an orphan sitting with them was the most countercultural thing the world had ever seen. They could not wrap their minds around it. But this identity of a new humanity so impacted this first century church that they began to see others in a different way and their table proclaimed the gospel. And it created challenges. Because when you have a small group of people sitting around a table from all different backgrounds, there's conflict that arises, isn't there? And so a lot of the New Testament letters are Paul writing to these churches saying, hey, here's how to deal with that conflict. This new humanity, maybe this would be a good illustration. Think of what a first century church would have looked like. Let's say I take a few of you and we go on a trip uh, to Jerusalem. Hey, Jerusalem may be uh, the city that has, uh, at any given time, the most Christian tourists from all over the world. I mean, Jerusalem is a common place where Christians from whatever ethnicity they're from will gather to, to walk through the Holy Lands and to see the places that Jesus walked. And so let's say uh, I got a few of you and we're on this trip, and then we decide let's just stay here and we're going to start a church together. And in this city of Jerusalem at this given time are believers from all of these nations, from, from Kenya, from Ethiopia, from, from the Pacific Islands, from, from uh, Europe, all over the place, from Japan, from, from South America, and we form a church together. That's what the first century church was like. Can you maybe imagine that a Christian from uh, Africa might worship different than a group of Christians from Missouri? Yeah. <laughs> Possible? <laughs> that, that maybe that some, some Christians from Latin America may be a little more expressive than Daniel Hood from Midwest America? Yeah. And so these churches created these challenges of all of these different people with their different backgrounds trying to be a church together, trying to be a family together. 
And so Paul is writing to this church in Colossae. Colossae. And this message, make sure you understand, this message he's going to say is aimed at the church, not an empire. It's aimed at the church. It's not talking politics. In our day, we can confuse uh, Christianity with politics. They're separate. It's important we understand that. So here's what he says in Colossians 3.11. Here, here, at the table, here at the church, there is no, there is not Greek or Jew. There is not circumcised or uncircumcised. There is not barbarian. There is not Scythian. There is not slave. There is not free. But Christ is all and in all. Do you hear how countercultural that is? He just listed a bunch of the dividing class, the, the things that might divide people in this church. And here's what he said. Here, in God's family, at God's table, there is not this and this and this. As a matter of fact, Christ is all and Christ is in all. Christ isn't in the wealthy person any more than Christ is in the orphan. Christ is in all. Christ is all and is in all. So in this new humanity, there's no established hierarchies. The identity of the church is one unified family from multiple cultures and ethnicities under the reign of Jesus who is our head and is our older brother. Did you know that the Bible calls Jesus your older brother? The Bible uses family language to talk about the new humanity. And that all are brought together, that all are in Christ, that all who have the spirit of Jesus have been brought together and are heirs together. They are siblings. That's why we call this series Siblings and saints. Romans 8.14, Paul talks about it here. He says, all who are led by the Spirit of God, again, see the all, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's an intimate word for, for dad, for father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The new humanity creates a new identity. What is that new identity? That we are brothers and sisters who have been adopted through the death and resurrection of our older brother Jesus and are all one family under the head of God. That's the identity. And the Bible has a global vision that that identity of brothers and sisters coming together that all nations will be blessed. It's the call that God gave Abraham. Abraham, you're, you're going to move to a home. You're going to have a kid, and all nations will be blessed. The Bible has a global identity in regards to, to, to how it views the family of God. Do you have a global identity? Do you see 
the family of God is not a Midwest American church culture, but a global culture. Like, who do you think of when you think about the average Christian? If I say, who's the average Christian? What do you think of Christians? My, 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 my thought goes to some guy in a small town at First Baptist Church. That's the average Christian. Yeah, just good old boys following Jesus. That's the average Christian. Did you know the average Christian is really uh, more like a poor woman living in a village in Africa? That's the average Christian. Because if you look at a, the, the amount of Christians in any given place, America's like number six or seven on the list. We're not even in the top five. Christianity is a, is a global vision, has a global vision. So, so believers in Christ, you have more in common with a poor woman who's a believer living in Africa, than you do your unbelieving golf partner. Let me say it again. You have more in common with a poor African woman who's following Jesus than you do your unbelieving golf partner. We as a church, we have more in common with a group, with, with a church of, of 12 believers in a village in South America in Peru, in the jungle, where I got to go one time and be part of their church, than we do if you were at the football game cheering Missouri State on yesterday. We have more in common there. Is that how you view the faith of a global group of people? That's the new identity. So the new humanity of Jesus, that Christ is in all, creates this new identity that says, no, there's not, there's not here Jew and Greek and barbarian and slave and Scythian and liberal and conservative and Democrat and Republican and black and white. No, all are in Christ and we are together a family under our head, Jesus. That's the identity of the church. And that's how the table's invited to look. So this table should reflect this new humanity. So a new humanity creates a new identity that creates new relationships where all have value, where all have honor, where all are welcomed at the table. See, at this table um, are people that in the kingdom of the world mindset have nothing in common. I mean, you have Anthony that grew up in, in California and, and moved here to, to play basketball. You have Sonny that was, uh, is from India and, and grew up in India. Uh, you have Chris and Brian Majors, who are a couple like in their 20s, late 20s, early 30s. Uh, Chris is from Iowa. Brian's here from here in Springfield. And in the, in the kingdom of the world mentality, they have nothing in common, do they? They have nothing in common. There are all kinds of things that would divide them. But actually in the new humanity, here's what they're invited to do. With the mindset that in Christ they are one family, they're invited to sit at a table. And they're invited to share, and they're invited to listen. Listen. They're invited to come and acknowledge how they've um, stereotyped one another from time to time and to repent of that. They're invited to share their experiences and to share their different experiences. So Anthony growing up in California 
Oakland, California, has a different experience than Brian growing up in Springfield, Missouri. It's a different experience. And they're invited to listen to one another and to hear experiences, to, to grieve the, 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 the sorrow stories, to celebrate the good stories. They're invited to share common experiences because every one of you know what it's like to be betrayed. Every one of you know what it's like to be powerless. Every one of you know what it's like to experience shame. And out of this new identity, people that on the surface should never eat together are invited to share a meal. And this meal proclaims the death and resurrection of Jesus. This new humanity creates this new identity that changes the way we relate to one another. So at this table, we can celebrate what's different about one another. Like it actually becomes not just a place of, that might divide us, but actually something to celebrate our differences. At this table, everyone has a voice, and that voice is needed to help one another have a worldview of the gospel. Every voice is welcome at this table. It is the new humanity. So that's what Paul's talking about in Colossians chapter 3. At this table, there is no Jew and Greek and different brackets. They're all, they're all one. And they can view each other as one. Well, he keeps going. And he's not just going to talk about dynamics in the culture and how we relate to different people. He's going to talk about our homes. And we've got to know first century. What did a first century Roman household look like? You had the husband who was considered, the, here's what he had. He had what's called paternal power, which means he ruled. The husband in a first century Roman household ruled. He could do whatever he wanted. He was the only one that could own property. He had all authority over everyone in his household. In a household where there was any sort of wealth, he, he would have a, a, a ruling father would have a, a wife and children and servants and slaves that were all under his rule. So a family in a Roman world was a group of people who were subject to a ruling man. That's what a family looked like in first century Rome. A Roman woman uh, couldn't have citizenship. She was dependent on her husband for that. And her whole identity was in her husband or the children, specifically male children, that she would birth. And so that's the identity of this home. And so now this thing called Christianity in the church begins to come into homes and begins to disrupt an, a first century dynamic of a home, and that's what Paul is going to address. So this is Michael and Malia Shrimpton. Michael's one of our elders. Uh, we, Emily and I have been friends with Michael and Malia for several years. And as husband and wife, Paul's going to address how their identity, even as followers of Jesus, the new humanity, changes the way they relate. Let's, let's look at it. Wives, submit to your husbands as this fitting in the Lord. Contemporary readers, we don't like that word submit, 
Um, and we've got to make sure we see the next phrase, the next line that he's going to say. But kingdom of God women are called to graciously submit, respect their husbands. It not, he's not talking masculine dominance, nor is he talking about females raising up and saying, well, we have the power now. He's talking about a wife who graciously lays down her life for her husband, who graciously tries to honor, respect, empower, uh, talk about what's good about her husband, a wife who in God's kingdom has a demeanor, this kind demeanor that puts her husband's first. Then verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Notice what it doesn't say. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, make sure your wife submits. It does not say that. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. In a kingdom of the world mindset, in an old kingdom mindset, men want to rule over, we want to dominate with power, whether that's physical power, whether it's our voices getting big. And what Paul says is, no, no, in the new humanity, husbands, you don't dominate your wife, you speak tender and sensitive. You pursue her heart, not her body. That you lead, that you love her, husbands, with sacrificial love that puts her first. Uh, in Ephesians 2, Paul will say like this, husbands, love your wives as, help me, Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died. Sacrificial death. Sacrificial death. So when the kingdom of the world Marriage, a kingdom of the world marriage, a marriage that's not influenced by the gospel. Each of them come with their own, their own mentality of what I deserve and what I want. And, and, and Michael uh, ha, has, a, has desires that will turn into demands. And when he doesn't get what he wants, she will feel his wrath. And Malia will have desires they're turned into demands. And when she doesn't get what she wants, rage, anger, and both of them are invited to a new way of relating in the kingdom. Both of them are invited to say, listen, the challenges in my marriage are not his fault, they're not her fault, they're my fault. And the best thing I can do is lay down my life for my spouse. And sometimes that is a fight and sometimes that takes tears as I try to let go of the power that I so want to grab. But in the kingdom of the world mindset, she is your sister. She's not someone to be dominated. And it changes marriages. It changes dynamics. Well, he's not done because he's going to keep talking to all dynamics. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. This is Eleanor and Lucille, and they're invited to the table. And as children, they're invited to a new way of relating. I don't know if we have any kids here. Kids, this is, this is for you. Uh, kids, every time, uh, kids, every time you respect your parents, you love Jesus. Every time, kids, you obey your parents, you obey Jesus. That, that children are called to respect and honor and obey their parents just like they would 
God, see, it's cool. And in, hear this, guys. We read this, we're like, oh, children, so sweet. The first century world, people didn't address children. To even address them in a holy scripture, to give them instruction, is to give them value. Because in the first century world, children were viewed as his property. That's how they were viewed. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. Children are not property. They are image bearers of God. And how you treat your children matters for the kingdom. Parents, can I challenge us? Our, parent, our children need emotional coaching, emotional connection, not stuff. They need our hearts. They need their hearts addressed. Verse 21, fathers, and, and, and he's addressing the father because that was culturally there, but we're just going to say parents, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So in the ancient world, uh, children were property. Fathers could do whatever they wanted to. They could put their kids in prison. They could kill their children, and no one thinks twice about it in the first century world. But in the new world, or in the new kingdom, they're called to compassion, to kindness, to patience with their children, not, not demanding, not power over them, belittling them, harsh with them, but emotional investment connecting to their heart, and they're invited to sit at the table. Now, Paul's not done. He's going to bring this new kingdom uh, language into, into all relationships, and one of the relationships he's going to bring in is the reality of, of slaves or bondservants and their master. Now, I'll talk about this in a second. For us, what we're going to do is, is this is Lindsay. She owns a business here in, in town, and this is Chloe, and Chloe is her employee. Chloe works for Lindsay. And so they're in a business owner and employee relationship, and that's how we're going to approach this as we talk about us today. But let's look at this, verse 22. Bond servants. All right, let me pause. Let me tell you what a bond servant is. So let's say that you uh, are a, a day laborer, and you have a little, uh, we'll give you two scenarios. You, you have uh, 20 acres that you plant a crop on. And that's how you make your living for your family. Or let's say you have a little booth and you sell necklaces, okay? Well, when it comes around, if you're a farmer and you have to buy your seed, most of them didn't have money to purchase a bunch of seed up front. Or you're, uh, a, a, you own a little booth where you sell necklaces, you don't have the money to purchase your inventory. So you would borrow money from a more wealthy lender, like we do now. But in those days, you don't have a board overseeing to make sure loans are fair, and what's done. And so what happens inevitably is these uh, wealthy people know at one day that something's going to go wrong. And so they make loans that say, if you can't repay the loan, you now are my slave. And so you're a farmer and for five years you've done your seed and your, your crop has grown and you've sold it and you're managing this relationship. But one year there's a drought and you can't sell your seed and you can't repay the debt and now you're a slave, a bond servant. Or your necklaces get stolen you have no inventory to make money, you now become a bond servant. You are one, if you're an average person, you are one bad day away from being a slave. Bond servants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service or as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Bond servants, slaves, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. 
Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer, that's the harsh master, will be paid back for the wrong he has done. For there's no partiality. So Paul's writing to these bondservants or slaves who have come to faith in Jesus, who are part of this new humanity. And once again, even to address them is to restore their humanity. Because they were viewed as property. They were viewed as no value. As a matter of fact, uh, one of Aristotle, who's, who was one of the philosophers that day, taught that there's no, when you're talking about slaves, there's no talk about, quote, justice, because uh, slave of possession, there's no justice with a possession. That's what was taught in their world. But for Paul to address a slave, a bondservant, to say, no, you're at the table too, you're in Christ too, and now how he talks to them. And that's a challenge for us, because here's what we want Paul to say, slaves, rebel. Or here's what we want Paul to say, hey, masters, release all of your slaves because slavery is wrong. He doesn't say that. He speaks of the reality, not because it's the way it's supposed to be, but because of the way it was. Since the beginning of time, people have enslaved one another. And he's speaking to that reality. But by addressing slaves, he is restoring their humanity. And he gives them now the option, how do I live? How do I live? Now, even though I'm a slave, I'm part of this new humanity. And he calls them to radical, self-sacrificing love for those who treat them harshly. It's, It's natural in the kingdom of the world for a slave to hate their master. For a slave to want to kill their master. For a slave to look for any opportunity to rebel against their master. To, to repay the same harm done. And it's an endless cycle of vengeance and death. And here's what he's telling slaves. Hey, uh, in the kingdom of God, let's stop the cycle. And let's have a higher view. And here's what he says. Hey, hey slaves, serve your masters like you're serving Jesus. gives them a different perspective. They can't change the state they're in, but he says you can change how you think. And you're not serving your harsh master, you're serving Jesus. It's a switch in the mindset. It's that idea of thinking on things that are above. Verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly knowing that you have a master in heaven. So Paul addresses the slave and he addresses the slave master, the the master of the home, which had never been addressed. And he says to him, hey, there is a way that you treat people that matters. And here's the perspective, master. How does Jesus treat you? How does God treat you? That's how you treat your slave. They're not property. They're not an object. They're not, not someone who's less than human. They're image bearers of God and how you treat them matters. So in this, in this new humanity, this new humanity, uh, both Lindsay and Chloe are invited to view their new identity to change in relationship. So Lindsay's invited to say, listen, I have a master in heaven, and although I own a business, that doesn't give me right to treat people however I want to treat them. How am I supposed to treat people? The way God treats me. How does God treat you? Kindness compassion, 
patience, love. And that's how she's called to treat her employees. That Chloe has value for more than just the money she can make Lindsay. That she has value as an image bearer of the God. And then Chloe's address and say, hey, uh, and again, this is a, hopefully a different relationship than first century. But I'm working for her, but I'm working for Jesus. And the times that she's harsh with me, the times I feel misunderstood, the times I don't have a voice, Jesus knows what that feels like. Jesus connects me. And out of that identity, I can work hard, but here's the perspective. Yes, I'm working for Lindsay, but I'm really working for Jesus. So both are called to ask hard questions of how they relate to one another. No part of the human existence remains untouched by the gospel. No part of your life remains untouched by the gospel. In every part of our lives, we're invited to view the kingdom of God through the new humanity with this new identity that we are first brothers and sisters in Christ. And that how we relate to one another to treat each other must change because of that identity. Because we're family. And this requires a lot of hard work from all of us. And here's the cool thing. You have a place at this table. You're invited in. You don't get to this table by your good religious works. None of these people earned their spot at this table. This table was given to you by Jesus. By his life, he lived the life you couldn't live. His death, his resurrection, that is why you have a seat at this table. So everyone is invited to this table. And then once we're here, we're invited to a new way of relating to one another. So a harsh husband leads to a rebellious wife. And a harsh master leads to a rebellious servant. And being skeptical of those that are different to you lean to more suspicion and gossip. And at this table, every single person is divided to ask hard questions of themselves. Every single person is invited to confess and repent their failures and to forgive one another. And hear me, there will be disruptions at this table. There will be disruptions at this table. We will have differences that will turn to disagreements, that will turn to harsh feelings. And that's why it says, hey, forgive one another. That's part of the table. So if Chloe gets mad because she has a conflict on this table, she just pieces out, she never has to learn to forgive. And she misses something. See, this new humanity is, is about seeing that we have in common first Jesus, who is our head. And that we are brought together, and out of that identity, things can change. Relationships can change. So whatever discussion, whatever discussion you want to, you want to get into at this table, what do we think about this? What do you think about this political idea? What do you think about this? What do you think about this? Uh, what if we go higher? What if we not get caught up on this and we, as Paul says, put our thoughts on what's above and go higher to the new humanity? How would that change our tables?
This table is the most countercultural statement the world could ever know. Does it reflect your table? Does it reflect your relationships? How, how would Jesus today invite you uh, to not view others with suspicion or to not view others by your differences, but to see that in Christ there is a common table that we sit at and that we all have value and we all have something to add and we all have something to learn.